This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. When I was thinking about chance and indeterminism after Father Thomas, you know, and I spoke, and he was inviting me to speak at, at this conference, I did what most people do who are just going to speak about an unfamiliar topic. I Googled it. <laughs> and of course, most chance and indeterminism in chemistry isn't really discussed. So I could start discussing about the evolutionary sides of chemistry, and I thought, well, that's not really my expertise. And then at the other side, I start swinging closer to physics. And I said, no way. <laughs> I moved far, far away. Um, I've been far away from the physics side for quite some time. Um, so then I went back to exactly what Father Thomas said and said, what am I going to talk about? So I decided to focus specifically about me as a scientist in the world of drug discovery, um, as an organic chemist, became a medicinal chemist, works with biochemistry and the like. And that's what you're going to hear about today. So I'm going to walk through and discuss a little bit about who I am, um, where's my perspective coming from, talk about organic chemistry, talk about biochemistry, then you know, go into the different biochemistry of diseases states and how that relates to normal states. Then talk about the drug discovery steps one by one, kind of through the early stages up till the clinic, because once you get to the clinic, that leaves my world and goes into more biology and people. And I, you know, one of the reasons I became a chemist initially was I didn't really want to work with people. <laughs> you still have to. <laughs> so, um, so we'll start there. Uh, my approach to the topic, uh, I'm, you know, a medicinal chemist is really what I consider myself. Um, and as a medicinal chemist, I work with teams of people. I have my students, so from the picture on the right of my students that do research with me at the university and Alzheimer's disease, and the picture on the left are the team of people that work with me at the pharmaceutical industry in the pharmaceutical company. Um, there are a couple more that have been added. And I'm gonna call them my indeterminists, little superhero badges, and <laughs> it'll make a little bit more sense as I go through the talk. Um, so the, uh, you know, as Father said, I, my, my back, mentioned my background. Um, I started off in really big pharma, so from, you know, after I got out of you know, graduate school, uh, really large company, 40, 45,000 people worldwide, um, huge department. And then I went and worked to a law called small department, 50 scientists, 50 people in the whole company. And then I went to really tiny where it was myself and the founder. And now I'm going back up wherever there's about, you know, between myself and all the scientists, about 10 people. So that's my background. That's my perspective um, when I'm going through all of this. And then I, along the way, I became a, a you know, professor in chemistry, um, you know, and again, get to merge both worlds, my love of teaching and you know, my love of doing drug research. Um, I'm gonna give these definitions. So I, uh, in the Google searches, <laughs> YouTube searches, I found Father uh, Dominic and his little talk here on Providence and Chance. And so I'm going to use his definitions of per se causes, which mean to bring about a particular result, always or for the most part, and the per accidents causes, which are the intersecting lines of causality that bring about a result that is much harder to predict. Per se basically meaning it's inherent 
to the, in this case, chemistry. So it's going to happen because that's what the chemistry does. Whereas the per accidents is the, you know, the, the conversation that we had of the two people that accidentally met up at the shop and one paid back the other's, uh, you know, monies you know, that they owed, but they didn't intend to do that. So that's, those are the definitions I'm going to use and you know, my limited knowledge, but I'm going to leave you with a lot of questions at the end of my talk because I am not a philosopher, so I'm giving it my best and I want to hear your feedback. <laughs> um, all right, organic chemistry. Um, let's start there. Who knows what salicylic acid is? What do you use it for? Acne wipes, right? Would anybody eat salicylic acid? No, not really. So, but you can take salicylic acid and you can mix it with methanol and with present sulfuric acid and make wintergreen. Anybody eat wintergreen? No. Yeah, probably yeah, right? <laughs> Chew bubble gum, you know, Wrigley's. Uh, you know, or you take salicylic acid, you mix it with acetic anhydride and sulfuric acid, and you end up with aspirin. Anybody take aspirin? Probably at some point in time, maybe not so much anymore. Right. So when I'm talking about these reactions, right, these reactions are always going to produce exactly what is drawn on the slide. You mix methanol with salicylic acid, you're always going to produce wintergreen. You, you might have byproducts, but we won't go down there, and I'm not going to touch on that part. But you're never going to produce aspirin. And when you mix acetic anhydride with salicylic acid, you're always going to produce acid. You're never going to produce wintergreen. So I'm going to say that at least in terms of organic chemistry, when you're just drawing simple reactions and simple re you know, reactions, I think of organic chemistry as a term. I can draw it on a sheet of paper. What I mix together, I get. So in terms of organic chemistry, I, I call it determinant. Where, what I don't mention, but kind of um, where the per accidents causes come in are the chemists. And that's where I you have the pictures of my indeterminates there. Where the chemists, chemists choose which reactions to run to discover new chemistries. What type of organic chemistry is discovered is different, you know, based on, you know, I went to the school at the University of Rochester, somebody who might have gone to Cornell or to Harvard or, you know, any other place for their training would probably have a different background, different perspective, and might come up with completely different chemistries. So when I'm thinking of, when I think of determinism and indeterminism, I think, okay, the chemistry itself is determinate, organic chemistry is determinate. The decisions that are made as to which reactions to run are where the indeterminism comes in, in terms of a person making a decision as to what to run, what their background is, what science exists in the literature before you even get started. Um, we spend a ton of time researching before we even run a reaction. So, and that guides and directs and whether or not you found it. You might work at a university where there's software that allows you to search and they've paid the $10,000 a year to buy it. Or you might work at a university where you don't have that software. Or <laughs> and you are flipping through journals in the library and the archives. Um, that usually doesn't happen. Usually you just suffer and try to find the university <laughs> where you're gonna get access. But um, anyway, so then I'm gonna leave my organic chemistry world behind because that's pretty much what I've done in my life. Um, I use organic chemistry as a tool now. I use the determinant part and I've moved on. I haven't tried discovering new reactions in quite some time. I'm gonna focus a little bit on the biochemistry and medicinal chemistry now. Uh, the, if you think, 
of determinism and indeterminism. For me, again, as soon as life enters the picture, I think indeterminism enters the pictures in terms of chemistry. Um, and that's the times where there's the chance comes and starts creeping in. Um, I think you know overall biochemistry is very determinant if you think of the actual chemical reactions. But there's, as I'll see when I talk about diseases, that's when I think there's the indeterminism starts to creep in into the science. Um, and it's kind of a continuum, I'll call it a continuum between the two. It depends on how much the human interacts, is how much indeterminism kind of where you say you have a little bit of hand-waving to a lot of hand-waving as to whether or not it's indeterminate. <laughs> um, so uh, that's kind of where I'm gonna go. And then this basically, you know, if I, I say biochemistry is determinate or medicinal chemistry is determinate, so when, if you're thinking about a biochemical reaction, it's a normal reaction. When does, when disease starts to creep into the picture, why? This is a normal normal process going on in the body. We're all sitting here, you're all breathing, different biochemical processes are going on, you all ate breakfast or had coffee, have caffeine pumping through your body, and there are certain chemical reactions that occur. Why are some people getting disease? Why do you end up with Alzheimer's disease, cancer, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, you know, kidney disease? Why? And that's kind of what I'm gonna discuss um, in my next set of slides. The same thing goes for the medicinal chemistry side. I make a drug, I give it to patients, it works in 30%, 50% of the patients. Why not the other 30 or you know, 50, 70% of the patients? What's the difference? You know, not everyone that takes a cancer treatment is cured. Why? I mean, it's the same biochemical processes going on. And I'm gonna try to touch on and the differences there as well. Um, right, so I'm going to start off with cholesterol and fatty acids. Yes, everybody's heard of cholesterol, everybody knows what fat, fat is. So we'll start, I'm, I'm trying to go with what I think the vast audience will understand. Stayed away with, from most of my basic research. So if you think of cholesterol right there and fatty acids, they're considered what are known as lipids or the fats in the body. That's when you're eating fats, this is what you're eating. Um, you know, cholesterol, it's an important component of cell membranes where it modulates fluidity. All that means is when the cell, the surface of the cell, is it, they, all the molecules on the surface of the cell, the proteins that are there, are able to move around on the surface of the cell. And cholesterol helps that happen. So that's, that's good because it helps for biological activity. Um, it's a precursor for vitamin D and other steroid hormones that are in your body. Everybody likes vitamin D, right? It's that's made from cholesterol. Is cholesterol bad yet? No, not really, right? Um, it's also the synthesis for bile acids in the liver, which are secreted into your intestines, that then solubilize with fats and aid in the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins, right? So you eat a high-fat food. If you didn't have your bile acids, then the high-fat food would just keep going and wouldn't be pretty on him, right? <laughs> reality. The bile acids help those substances to be absorbed into your body. So useful, right? And then we think fatty acids, right? Fatty acids, all of your your cells have lipids found in them. So and for you scientists out there, I'm going to get bored out of your mind right now. So. <laughs> but I'm trying to bring it to basic here. 
Um, and they basically, these fats help to make your cells. So you need each fat, you need the fat as part of your diet, right? They're also a fuel molecule. Um, they're stored as triglycerides, so it helps your body to uh, you know, produce energy. Then if you combine these two amongst with some other stuff, you end up with known as LDL or low density lipoprotein. Is that the good one or the bad one? LDL cholesterol. That's the bad one. <laughs> That's what everybody thinks. But LDL is actually just a fat transport globule, for lack of a better term. It helps to transport fats and cholesterol around the body. It's a normal function. So why do we consider it bad? Because everybody told us to worry about it. But its normal function is not. It's just designed to carry around all these molecules around the body. So, if we stop and think of it in terms of cardiovascular disease. So, cardiovascular disease, right, you think of atherosclerosis, um, it's chronic arterial disease, you have these, you know, plaques that build up along the sides, and the plaques are shrinking the size, of, narrowing the size of the arteries, and eventually your red blood cells and the rest of the molecules in your blood can't make it through, which is bad, right? You lose, you can end up with a stroke, end up with a heart attack and end up in the hospital and they're inserting you know, stents and expanding your veins and all kinds of nasty stuff happens then. And you're worried about the food you're eating for the next forever and you know, not good. But when we think about that, you know, you have this narrowing and hardening of the arteries and what do most people think of when you think of the narrowing of the arteries? What are you trying to avoid? What is Society told us to avoid fats and cholesterol, right? I just told you fat and cholesterol were good. Why is it bad? And this is where, um, if you think about what's going on, there are these risk factors that are associated that they always tell us. There are risk factors associated with you form, you know, your fat and cholesterol causing you problems, right? You have uh, unhealthy blood lipid profiles, so unhealthy unhealthy fats that are floating around in your blood, you get high blood pressure, you know, salt, everybody says, right? You have too much salt in your diet, type two diabetes, smoking, obesity, stress, other physical inactivity. But we can change all these things, right? These are all things that we can change in terms of our body. And then there's the things like this, age, gender, race, family history. We can't change any of this, right? You are who you are. <laughs> you are who you are from a scientific perspective, um, you know, and that you have the uh, these factors that you can change. So if we look at the biochemistry of cholesterol and triglycerides, and I'm going to think of them in terms of per se causes and per accident causes, right? If we have they they both have specific functions within the body, and discuss that, right? Those I'm going to call their per se causes. Their specific, you know, functions is what they're supposed to do. Then we have the, uh, you know, the diseased state that exists. And I'm going to ask the question: Is this chance? Is this random? This is the question I want you to think about because I don't even know if I have the answer, <laughs> and you know, I have my opinions. But this is where I, I think, from a discussion perspective, I'd like to hear. Um, Right, we, we know what the per se causes of cholesterol, and, and I'm not going to go through them again. And 
and other, you know, other sclerosis are. Um, but once they start forming clots, is it accidental cause? Did you intend for that to happen? That's the question I'm kind of asking. And, and this is where I'm going to say there's a human factor that comes into play. And I'm going to say the human factor is the per accident cause, right? Because we're going out there, we're eating a diet high in carbohydrates. And so I didn't say fat. It's not the fat that's causing your, your you know, heart disease. It's the carbohydrates that are causing your heart disease. You're eating a diet high in carbohydrates um, that are then your body's turning into fats, the bad LDL, that then starts to clog your body. Did you intend when you ate a high carbohydrate diet to end up with a clogged artery or you know a stroke, heart attack? No. Is that accidental? The biochemistry, on the other hand, shows that if you eat a high carbohydrate diet, you will end up with these bad LDL particles that will lead to you know clogged arteries and plaques. That's I would call that per se, right? Because the biochemistry adjusts itself and the body is actually doing this, but it's the underlying intention to cause it. And that's the real question that, where I struggle because as a scientist, I say, you know, this is per se, you know, you eat too many carbohydrates, you're going to end up with heart disease, plain, plain and simple. But the problem is not everybody eats high carbohydrates ends up with heart disease. So then I say, well, maybe for accidents, <laughs> uh, which is it? And this is, I pose to, the, to everyone here, basically, quite honestly, I don't really have the answer myself. And I think that that's something I might put forth. Um, all right, glucose, insulin. I'm gonna try to give a few examples of each of these so you can think about it. Glucose and insulin, glucose, good, bad. Most people, it's good, right? You eat sugars, it's necessary for energy in your body. Um, insulin, for those who aren't familiar, insulin helps to control your blood glucose levels. You eat any type of carbohydrate that contains glucose, your body says, ah, sugar here, I need to store it. Insulin, pancreas turn on the insulin production, insulin comes out and grows and interacts and starts storing all of your glucose. You know, they both have per se causes, right? Glucose for energy, uh, you know, it's stored as glycogen in your cells. Um, it's an energy source, it's storage of energy, depot of energy. In insulin, it's a growth and building hormone, basically it's a, considered a hormone. Um, and it's basically promoting the absorption of glucose in all these different cells. But if you think of it in terms of diabetes and obesity, Diabetes and obesity. And there's a little picture up in the top corner here. If we think in terms of uh, what's going on in terms of diabetes, we have insulin resistance. So we have these little white dots that are glucose, the blue you know, spheres or ovals are insulin. And up at this point here, you can see how the insulin interacts with this little almost triangular shaped molecule that's on the surface of the cell. That's the insulin receptor. Right, so we have this insulin receptor, and when the insulin receptor comes in contact with insulin, it says, hey, store glucose cells, store glucose, bring it all in. Um, and 
problem is in people with diabetes, that insulin receptor no longer functions. Various reasons, uh, you, once your cell has enough sugar, the cell says, I can't store anymore. Take these insulin receptors and hide them and it buries them inside of itself and says no more insulin receptors. So you now have lots of glucose in your body and those who aren't familiar, high glucose levels in your body are dangerous for your kidneys. Fastest way to destroy your kidneys is lots of glucose flowing through your bloodstream. So it's dangerous. So your body says, this is dangerous. Pancreas, more insulin. So your body, in spite of the fact having lots of insulin floating around, more insulin's pumped out to interact with a few receptors that are left to turn on every single receptor possible. And then it tries to store more sugar and the cycle happens over again. The cell says no more, pulls those other insulin receptors in and then it cycle over and over again, your insulin, 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 higher and higher and higher. So it's normal function though, right? Um, so this is, um, if you, if you, in terms of diabetes, obesity is kind of the same thing. It's a negative, overall negative, uh, you know, effect with, that leads to lots of different side effects, right? There's a ton here. This picture that I found is in terms of SARS-CoV-2 and kind of the receptors, but gave a good picture, right? There's all these hypertension, diabetes, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol levels are high, triglycerides are high, and heart disease, pulmonary function, all these problems. So these, these are the types of things that end up with people, you know, who are in this type of state. Um, per se, per accident. What's the difference here, right? You, there are per se causes for diabetes and obesity, right? I mean, for uh, glucose and insulin. They're per se, right? There are certain functions that glucose and insulin have. But then why do some people end up in a state where they eat lots of glucose, you know, lots of carbs, that end up in a state of diabetes or where an insulin resistance and others not. You see plenty of people who are bowing down on candy bars, who are eating uncontrollably. I won't even get into the science behind, you know, the lack of control that comes when you elevate your insulin levels. It's a whole other, you know, side side of science, problems that arise. Where, you know, they look perfectly healthy, never have any problems whatsoever, right? And is that per accident? I would say as a scientist, when I think of it in terms of disease, it's per se cause. You eat too many carbohydrates, your insulin levels go too high, you end up with insulin resistance and you're gonna end up with diabetes. Right? But then not everybody does. So how do you think of it? What is the, what is the difference? What, when we're thinking of their per se causes, is it per se, is it per accident? I would say this is the human factor again, right? There's a difference between each human. There's different environments, different things going on in our bodies. And, you know, we can't predict. And that's what I would say, I lean back on, it's per accident cause. It's accidentally happened. It probably will happen, but it doesn't always happen. And we can't predict it just simply by looking at you and saying, you, you. People with diabetes, you know, there's perfectly thin people with diabetes. So it's not even just, this has nothing to do with size and obesity itself. So you, you never know. Um, 
So I'd say most of my stuff on the slides already and then talking around <laughs> the way. Uh, one more. Cortisol. It's a stress hormone. So think of terms of stress hormones. So we have our stress hormones that exist. Stress hormones are good. You're under stressful situation, your body wants to control all the reactions that go on in your body. Cortisol, just for looking at the molecule, see if cortisol is there. I'm gonna go back just to show you. Uh, structural perspective, here's cholesterol. See, they look similar to one another. They're both in the steroid hormone family, they're all made. Many of them are made, many of the hormones are made from cholesterol. Tell I don't like these current science. science that tells you cholesterol is bad. It's all mixed up. But anyway, we have conversations about that another time. But we have cortisol, right? It's basically its goal is to inter interact with what's known as the glucocorticoid receptor. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, this, what it does is it actually increases blood sugar um, through what's known as gluconeogenesis. Chemical process of making glucose. Literally, you start synthesizing glucose in your body because, in order for you to have energy, we talked about glucose. Right? It's an energy store, you know, source for your body. Well, if you need sugar because your your energy, your sugar levels are low, your body will literally start making sugar. Glucose is one of those substances that actually I wouldn't call it a nutrient. I wouldn't call it anything. You actually don't need glucose to live your body can make glucose. You can eat everything except for glucose and your body will still make it for you. So it required, it's so, so necessary for life that your body makes it. Um, then you have, uh, it also, cortisol also prevents the release of substances in the body that cause inflammation. Think about that. Cortisol stops inflammation. That's a good thing, right? You don't want inflammation in your body. You don't want your, you know, you have a stressful event that occurs you don't want to be inflamed and stress, you know, an inflammation event is not great for your body. It causes problems. Then it also aids in the metabolism of fat and protein and carbohydrates. Right? And that's part of synthesizing glucose and along the way. So good stuff, right? Cortisol. The glucocorticoid receptor, a little picture of it spinning around in the corner there. It regulates the genes controlling development of metabolism and immune response in almost every cell in the body. So I just told you cortisol is interacting with the glucocorticoid receptor that's found everywhere. Every cell in your body is being controlled by cortisol levels. And it's helping you to control your, again, development of the cells and what's going on, the metabolism, the energy usage, and the immune response, whether or not you have immune response or not. Extremely useful, important process, right? And if you activate this glucocorticoid receptor complex, it can either increase the expression of these anti-inflammatory proteins, or proteins that keep inflammation down, or it can decrease the in, in, uh, expression of the pro-inflammatory proteins. So there are proteins that turn on inflammation. So you can either lower those or increase the ones that stop it. So good, useful stuff. Problem is, what happens in a state we have elevated levels of cortisol all the time. I lock you in a closet, pound on the door, and leave you locked in there, and turn on the heat really high, and I turn on the air conditioner, and stress you out. You really mean. I go to jail. <laughs> but anyway, you get the point. You get a, a high stress environment. There are 
taking exam after exam after exam for your classes. Mean professors won't let you reschedule. <laughs> You're right, you have not only the never-ending exams, you have your uh, second year review coming up for your projects, and you have to determine whether or not they're gonna approve you, et cetera, et cetera, right? Constant stress. Your cortisol levels are always raised, always raised, always raised. What happens now? Right. You have a set, set case where you're now your cortisol, elevated cortisol levels now lower your insulin and you get elevated blood sugar. You know, we talked on the previous slide, you know, insulin helps to put away the blood glucose and store it. Well, if you lower the insulin, then now the glucose levels are higher. Well, do that is also dangerous, right? Then the problem is, is now you're in this state with lowered insulin but you're actually not getting the sugar into your cells. So your cells start to starve. In spite of the fact that you can eat as many carbs as you want, your, your cells are literally starving and you have tons of sugar running through your body. Right? But that's the normal function of cortisol. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, you get weight gain, right? Weight gain occurs because you're these low cellular sugar levels that are going on lead to false hunger signals. So your cells cells are starving, they send out chemicals that say, I'm hungry, give me more sugar. I'm hungry, give me more sugar. And you crave high calorie foods, so you eat more sugary foods because you're dying for sugar. You're literally starving for sugar. And you get to signaling and you overeat. Anybody ever get in a state where you're stressed out and you're mowing down on sugar? There it is chemical biological response to the actual system going on. You get your suppressed immune system now. Your immune system drops down. Because remember, that's controlling, it lowers the immune response. But if you have your immune response down all the time, what happens now? You're open for disease because your immune response has been lowered. Right? Your chemical signaling isn't working properly. You end up with digestive problems. Why do I digest the problems? It's not important. Your body says, this is not an important function. You know, my, all the rest of the cells are starving. We need more sugar elsewhere. Digestion turn off. It's not, not an important function because you have storage of, supposedly storage of energy and all the other molecules in your body. Your body can start digesting proteins and fats and do other things. Then you end up with potentially for heart disease where, you know, it basically starts constricting the blood vessels Remember, if you narrow the blood vessel, you don't want that to happen, and you get higher blood pressure, and that starts causing you know damage to the vessels, which is again not good. You end up with plaque buildup then. So you can see, Cushing syndrome is kind of us where you have almost all of these things going on. It's not a useful to healthy disease. So I ask the same question again. There are per se causes right, for cortisol and the glucocorticoid receptor. They're normal biological functions. In the state of disease, Graxin, did you mean to end up in a lowered inflammatory state and get infected by some you know, disease, virus, parasite? No, but it's a normal biological function. The body's doing what it's supposed to do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I've said most of this already. So. Um, but I'll, I'll go back to all this, the human factor all over again. Right? There's a human factor 
We choose what environment we put ourselves into. We choose to go to graduate school. We choose to uh, eat a high carbohydrate diet. We, you know, we make decisions. Until the fact that you end up in a system where your cortisol levels go down, and then you don't choose to eat a high carbohydrate diet, your body chooses for you. So you lose control, literally lose control. <laughs> but you end up with these these cases where now, you know, there are things you can control, right? You can, there are, are things that you can control and can't, right? There's different types of medications. Um, there's, uh, you can relieve stress in various ways, prayer, exercise, things like that, right? You can go through and you can actively try to lower your cortisol levels. There are things you can actively do. Uh, right? That's the human factor where you can control yourself. You know, there are elevated estrogen levels, there are things like that. Um, but, you know, and there's things like med medications that'll lead to elevated cortisol levels, uh, and things, of, things of those natures. Okay. So, all right. Change gears a little bit, that's the biochemistry side. That's the disease versus normal biological process side. I'm gonna talk about the drug discovery process. This is where I, most of my life has been. Um, and in terms of drug discovery, um, we have the drug discovery process where we start with a lengthy process. It's, you're starting, usually screening 20,000 to 100,000 compounds. It's called high throughput screen and you have a biological assay that's developed and you screen tens of thousands of compounds. From that tens of thousands of compounds, you get couple thousand into the tens of targets that you narrow it down to that you pick and that's about you know the entire screening process and then from there you find the ones with the favorite favorite biological activity and you you will go through what's called the lead optimization stage where we start make trying to make them more potent trying to reduce the side effects of uh, you know, uh, side effect profiles of the drugs of interacting with targets that you don't intend them to. You start, and then you move on uh, to try to improve their properties, right? And you take a pill in your mouth, and you need to absorb into your gut. You need it to be metabolized, right? You don't want the drug floating through you forever, so it needs to be metabolized. You need it to then be excreted out of your body, either, you know, usually through the urine or feces in some manner. Um, and you need it not to be toxic, right? Or the metabolism to be toxic. So you have to optimize all of these things. This is kind of the drug discovery process. And then it moves on into, you know, uh, the point where you look at the metabolism and what's known as the pharmacokinetics in animals. And I'll show a little bit of slide about that. And that's kind of how it gets absorbed into, into animals and you try to optimize those properties as well. And then it goes on to the clinic. And then I forget about it because it deals with people again. <laughs> So, right. so when we think about, I'm going to go through each kind of one of these steps. I'm going to talk about the high throughput screen. High throughput screening. When I think high throughput screening, I think, all right, we have these tens of thousands of compounds. That's not random. We chose a specific tens of thousands of compounds that we're going to screen. We have them. We pick them. We run them through the biological assay that we developed as scientists, and they're being screened and going through you end up getting the select targets out of that. You know, we have these robots that are doing everything for us nowadays, so it's not, you know, scientists, you're getting 10,000 compounds, 100,000 compounds. 
through a mess to give it off for us. It's all automated. If you ever get a chance to go up to a pharmaceutical company and check this out, super cool. <laughs> Multi million dollar operations going on there. No need for scientists anymore. <laughs> you still have to develop the assay. Hopefully, they don't get rid of that part of it. <laughs> uh, all right. So, the question when I start thinking about this in terms of indeterminism is I work at a specific company, we have a specific selection of compounds. I would call these per accident causes, right? Because the compounds that I choose are the ones that are available to me. The biological assays that are developed are based on the experience of the scientists that are actually doing the science. Where, what background did they come from? How were they trained? And that's where I say, you know, this is accidental because in a completely different pharmaceutical company, you could have somebody come up with a completely different set of biological screens screen completely different molecules, have completely different targets, and it happens all the time. Um, so the question is, is what can we come up with? Is this, this a function of chance? Which assays, which compounds are screened? What screens are designed? Is this chance? Is this indeterminism? Or is this per se because we made those decisions specifically to do that? The hit the lead process is the same thing. Hit the lead is you take the molecule, like I said, and you try to improve all the different properties. You try to get rid of the side effects. There's the cycle that it runs through. You make the molecule better, then you test it, and make the molecule better again, test it against all the different assays, and cycles over and over and over again until you find one that's perfect, and you send it off to the next steps. And this happens again, right? I chose, as a chemist, which molecules to make next. Those are per se causes, right? I said, this is the next one based on the data that the biologist provided me, and I'm going to make this one. And I'm gonna send it back to the biologist. They're gonna do these specific tests, per se. But at a different company, a different chemist would probably do something completely different. Is this, so is my choice accidental or is this on purpose? Is it per se or is it per accident? Since it's a I'm, I'm leaving the questions open because I don't have the answers. Um, all right. The DMPK, thank God for mice. <laughs> we test everything and pretty much everything in mice um, because we want to determine whether or not it's you know metabolized and safe. And we have biological profiles. We have this graph down here. We dose the mice and we look at how much compound gets absorbed in the mouse's bloodstream and whether or not it gets excreted as it's you know coming down in the curves. So, you know, there are different types of mice though. We can test them in different types of mice. We can choose different types of mice. So this is the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm repeating myself, I know, but I'm just talking about the, my particular process, right? We have this entire sequence where I choose the specific, you know, molecules that move on. My choice, you know, that's per se, I would say. These, these are actual choices being made, I'm choosing. But again, in terms of the grand scheme of all possible molecules, some other scientists could have chose something else. You know, which mouse, which biological assay we run it in, is chose by the bio biologists, right? That's a choice, but maybe at a different company, 
you might not have the budget to test it as, many, as many mice or the same mice or as many times or as many molecules. Happens all the time. Small companies, we have little budgets, big companies, we test everything. All right, so are these experiments themselves random? Is this random? Is this chance? Is this exact? I don't know. So in conclusion, um, you know, I think biochemistry, organic chemistry, medicinal chemistry, they are per se, they're actual choices being made. There's very determinate, you know, biological pathways. As soon as my indeterminance and me, we become active in the process, I say that's accidental because other people could have made completely different decisions. Curious to hear your thoughts. The same thing happens in, in terms of you know the diseases and whether or not you choose to eat a specific food or stress out about an exam. You know, accidental, I would say, because it doesn't happen to everyone. Here's a picture of the church in Ave Maria. So if anybody has ever come to Ave Maria, I would recommend visiting. Beautiful. It's kind of reminiscent of old European towns. Churches in the center. It's the tallest building in all of the town. And all the buildings are the little towns and shops around, or centered around the church. Universities across the street. If you have a chance, come down and visit. And come enjoy the palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>